Amen. Thank you, Matt and Jordan. Uh, good morning, church. My name is Chad Adams. I'm a church member here at Redeemer Church Odessa. Uh, my wife, Albany, and I help lead a community group. We're part of the Adams Prado group, uh, which is a lot of fun. We very much enjoy it. Uh, I have the privilege of reading today's text. We're going to be in Mark chapter 2. We made it to chapter 2, uh, verses 1 through 12. And I'll be reading out of the ESV translation. Um, so if you'll turn there with me, we'll read. And the title of the section is, Jesus Heals a Paralytic. Uh, and when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. When they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk, but that, may, that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. May the readers of God's word be blessed this morning. Thank you, Chad. That is Redeemer Church's resident nice guy. So we're glad he is here. Got a voice that will make a Wolverine purr, buddy. Hey, uh, my name's Tanner House. I'm the, uh, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you need a Bible, my son Levi's back there, you can raise your hand and he will hook you up. If you don't own a Bible, that can certainly be yours to keep. So he is here to help you out if you need one. Thanks. Thank you, Levi. Job well done. Hey, um, I just want to point out a couple of things. I don't know if you walked in and saw all the tables out there, but we uh, don't own this building, if you didn't know. Uh, and so there is a very nice Mother's Day brunch buffet taking place in our midst, and so we're just going to work around it. So if you have kids after the service, go get your kids. Keep them close by. Uh, We've got security people walking around, but again, this is functioning as a restaurant also today. So just keep an eye on your kids. Um, that is just a loving pastoral reminder for you today. Um, it is Mother's Day, so they are having a brunch buffet for Mother's Day to celebrate. So happy Mother's Day to all the mothers here. Uh, I want to acknowledge that this day is super hard for a lot of you for a variety of reasons, whether that be miscarriage or failed adoptions or infertility or singleness. So I wanted just to take a minute and tell you that we see you. Um, thank you for being here. I know this day can be hard, and many churches will go above and beyond to celebrate and honor mothers. And I don't want to isolate anyone, especially if 
you're struggling. So ultimately, I just want to remind us that we're gathered together this Sunday and every Sunday to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus first and foremost. And in light of that, in light of the resurrection, we get to celebrate the blessings that Christ has given us because Christ has given us everything through himself and in him we have life because of the resurrection. So let me say this, if you're a mother, thank you for all the work you do in raising your children. It is often a hard and thankless job and so we want to honor your diligence and encourage you in that. Uh, You are seen, you're loved, you're valued, you are appreciated. And I also want to say this, Your identity is not found in being a mom. So if you are in here and you're struggling with loss and you're grieving specifically in this area, I want to say to you also that you're seen and you're loved and you're valued and you're appreciated. Most importantly, you are seen and loved by God and the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit. So if you're celebrating this day, we celebrate with you. If you're grieving today, I want to tell you something. You're not alone. We stand with you, and it's okay to feel incredibly sad. You have permission, not that you need it from me, to feel however you need to feel this morning. Church, I just want to remind you that this day can be incredibly painful for many So as a church, we're called to bear with one another in love. So if you're grieving, we grieve with you. Sisters in Christ, mothers raising children uh, with your husbands, single mom, foster moms, adoptive moms, moms to babies in your hearts, those of you waiting to become mothers, stepmoms, to those of you who have lost your mothers, we want to honor you all this morning. The joy of the Lord is your strength. We love you. We are on this journey with you. So thank you for being here. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to hop in uh, to our text this morning. Lord Jesus, thank you today for mothers. Lord, thank you for life that is given through the cross and the resurrection. Lord, may we not elevate things that you've asked us not to elevate, Lord, may we first and foremost see the resurrection as the reason we gather and celebrate, Lord, but may we also not, um, not celebrate your gifts to us. Lord, thank you for moms. Lord, I pray for those whose um, desires are to be moms, and for whatever reason, Lord, they're not. Lord, I just pray that you would mend hearts and heal hearts, Lord, that you would be near this morning. Lord, I pray that you would use the next few minutes, use our time together to bring you honor and glory and praise. Lord, we need you. Lord, we love you. Help us to love you more. Lord, we trust you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're back in our series of Mark this morning. Uh, This week's story is in my top three favorite stories in the entire gospel. Number one, as I've previously said, is when the guy is running naked through the garden. That's probably my all-time favorite in the book, maybe even the whole Bible. Just so crazy. Uh, This is probably second or third. Uh, This is also a transition point for us in the gospel of Mark. Uh, This story is a prelude for what's known as the Passion Narratives. 
This is kind of setting into motion what is happening where Jesus gets arrested and sent to the cross. Uh, What we've seen so far in the Gospel of Mark is that Jesus is doing some amazing things by way of miracles, and the crowds that are around him are generally pretty receptive to what he's doing. Not necessarily his teaching on faith and repentance, but they do like his miracles. So they're curious about this guy and what he's up to, and so they're following him around. But here in our text this morning, we start to see the religious leaders of the day showing up, and they're starting to oppose Jesus. This, again, will ultimately end in Jesus being arrested, falsely tried, and crucified. But the beginning of this conflict begins here in chapter 2. And it's going to continue over the next five sections. And then later on in the, in the Gospel of Mark, we're going to see the Pharisees and the Sadducees showing back up. And they are in constant conflict with Jesus. And culturally speaking, the conflict with Christ is still very present and active. What we see in these encounters with the religious leaders of Jesus and his ministry and the disciples after Christ's ascension and what we know about Christianity from age to age is that the church is always in a constant battle for the defense of the faith. What we've seen up to this point in Mark, what we will continue to see is Jesus is asserting himself chiefly in the forefront of God's mission. And that mission is God becomes a man to save and redeem sinful humanity. Jesus Christ is God, and we, like those first century witnesses, have to either accept this or deny this. There is no middle ground here. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, if you haven't read it, you should. Um, He says it like this. People will say, I am ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. But a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. So the question I want us to consider today is, who is Jesus to you? So let's read. Mark uh, chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And when he, being Jesus, when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them, and they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So here again, word of Jesus is getting around. He is becoming quite popular as a miracle worker and a guy who teaches with power and authority. And so he's at this house, probably his buddy Peter's house, and he's preaching the word of God to this crowd. 
And they show up and they fill this house up and it is standing room only and the door is blocked. Verse 3 says that there comes these four guys with their buddy on a, on a makeshift stretcher. And they couldn't get to Jesus because there's so many people in this house. So they went up on the roof. Roofs in this time were like less sturdy versions of adobe structures. Like if you're from New Mexico or been to New Mexico, you see these all over. Uh, they would add these wooden beams that would cross like this, and then they'd cover them with hay and tree branches, and then they'd cover them with a thick layer of mud so it would dry and harden and form kind of an adhesive of sorts. It was pretty basic construction. So these guys and their buddy are up on the roof. Now, imagine what's going on inside the house when these four dudes are up on the roof. Jesus is teaching... You definitely hear the footsteps of these guys plodding around up there on the roof. So imagine Jesus is still talking. Then you hear these guys moving about up there. And like dirt clods start falling down on top of you. One of these guys probably had to run home and grab a shovel. The Greek word here is that they literally unroofed a roof. It was a roof. Now it's not. What would happen this morning if someone tried to come through the top of the fun dome? We'd all probably look up. There'd be like, oh my gosh, what's going on? We'd all like spread out. And so this roof is being removed. Jesus is still teaching. Dirt is falling from up above. What a scene. All of a sudden, they get the roof open, kick through it, dug up. And they lower this guy on the cot right down in front of Jesus. And there is no indication that he said anything. I wonder what that was like. Laying there on a cot, unable to move, looking up at Jesus, just unroofed a roof. The guy didn't say anything. The friends didn't say anything. They did their job. They got their friend to Jesus. And look what happens. Verse 5, it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. There's a lot going on in these verses, uh, specifically verse 5, that we need to take note of here. There's a couple of things that if we are not careful, we can just blow right past it. Especially if you're like me, raised in church, you've heard this story a million times. Don't miss what's taking place here. The text says, Jesus saw their faith. To quote from the book of James, faith without works is dead. This doesn't directly apply to these guys, but let me ask you a question. If you were this paralyzed guy, or if you were one of his friends, and you knew that there was a possibility that Jesus could do something for you, if you knew there was a chance that Jesus could make your friend walk, Think about it like this. Let's make it a little more personal. What if you had a family member or a friend, one of your kids maybe, that needed some emergency surgery? The stakes are that your child has this surgery or your child dies. All you have to do is get them to this doctor. The best doctor in the whole world has the skills and the time to perform the surgery that will ultimately save your child's life. No matter the cost, no matter the distance, I'm getting to that doctor. 
These dudes knew that Jesus could help their friend. We often think of these encounters in, uh, these encounters in, the, in the Bible with Jesus in very, like a very King James Bible, high churchy sort of kind of way where Jesus is stoic, long feathered hair, white robe, and he's just stoic. And everyone around Jesus is somber and stoic. But there is nothing calm about this scene. Four dudes just pulled a roof off of a house that they did not own in order to help their friend get to Jesus. They were trying to get their friend to the one guy on earth that could help their friend. And you know there was this one dad in the crowd that's like, who's going to pay for that? I thought that joke would land a little better. (laughs) Whatever. Uh, Man, sometimes faith looks like Rest in contentment. Other times it looks like unroofing a house. Jesus then does something even more remarkable. He tells the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. It is obviously clear that this dude has some severe physical limitations, right? Jesus doesn't just look to our surface-level needs. Yet again, we see Jesus meeting us exactly where we need him the most. This guy's greatest need is not to get up and walk. These four friends got, and this, and this paralytic guy, they got more than what they were expecting. In faith, they knew that Jesus could meet their deepest need, but they were not even aware of what their deepest need was. The same thing may be true for you. Your greatest need is not a new job or new coworkers or help with your marriage or help with your finances or help with the lack of your finances or your kids or your parents or getting a new house. Oftentimes we think We know what our needs are, but we're only focusing on our circumstances. And man, if you're only focusing on the external circumstances, that list could be infinite. Because if your circumstances change and you haven't really dealt with the root of what's going on inside of your heart, the roots of your discontentment or how you got to the place you're at in the first place, then nothing will ever really change. And you're prone to end up right back where you started. But Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be added unto you. Your greatest need is the same need as the paralytic. You need Jesus. You need Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God himself. To quote from Daniel Aiken, he says, Jesus saw everything clearly, far more clearly than we do. He used this teachable moment to make the point concerning our greatest need in this life of the life to come. Jesus forgives the sins of all who come to him in faith. This man is not paralyzed because of anything he'd done. It's unfair to trace his physical limitations back to some sin he's committed in this life. There's a common misconception both then and now that a person with a grievous physical limitation of some kind must be a grievous sinner. 
If that were the case, we would all be paralyzed or blind or deaf or lame. Sometimes in our lives, our circumstances are given to us by God so that God can get glory, honor, and praise out of our lives. I'm not saying that God is mean or that God is vindictive or God is spiteful, but I do think this passage of Scripture and others would affirm that God knows what we need more than we know what we need. And I'd also take this further and say that whatever, man, what if whatever circumstance we are walking through no matter how tough it may be, wouldn't we all agree, if you are a Christian, wouldn't we all agree that at the end of it, if we became more Christ-like, if we became more like Jesus, if we were more intimately connected to Him, wouldn't it all be worth it? No, just me? Man, so many of us, maybe even all of us, really recoil at this idea of walking through hard things. For one reason or another, maybe that's fear or guilt or shame or comfort or control. But man, what if instead of begging the Lord to be spared, we beg to become more like Christ? What if the Lord wants to increase your faith and increase your dependency on him before he releases you from whatever hard circumstance you may be dealing with. What if we took a right and biblical mindset about suffering and viewed it as an opportunity to press into Jesus? There are countless scriptures that tells us that Jesus is there with us through every circumstance. So I'd submit to you this. Christian, God is more concerned with your growth and your contentment in Him than He is with your comfort. What if, what if we got everything we ever wanted in this life, never endured any hardship, and then we missed Jesus in the process? Jesus never minimizes our hard because He Himself is acquainted with suffering, but Jesus also shows us how to endure in that suffering in complete submission to the Father's will. Jesus is showing his audience in this moment a few things. Jesus, the great physician, regarded spiritual blessings above material and physical blessings. And by declaring forgiveness of sins, he is claiming to have authority. He is claiming the right and the power to heal not only the body, but also the soul. So Jesus forgives this man's sins. But did you notice he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. He calls him Son. Here's what I find most amazing about the Gospel. Not only do we get to be forgiven, not only do we get to be justified, not only do we get to be cleansed by God, but then God grants us adoption as sons and daughters. Your forgiveness leads to your sonship. Your forgiveness makes you a child of God. This paralytic is now royalty. He is in right relationship with the King of Kings through the forgiveness of sins, and he is now a co-heir with Jesus, his brother, because of his adoption. 
And the same is true for you if you are indeed a follower of Jesus. And that should lead us to worship and praise. But unfortunately, some of the onlookers here, they took an issue with with what Jesus had said. Verse 6, Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, it would be real easy to kick around the scribes, the Pharisees. They're right about something. Only God can forgive sins. They're thinking, if he says out loud, if Jesus is saying that your sins are forgiven to this man, then what he's really saying that he's God. And if he's saying God, that if he's saying he's God, and we don't think he is, then he's blaspheming and he should be put to death. Jesus is fully aware of the Jewish law. He knows what it says about blasphemy. He is, in fact, making this assertion that he is God. Had he not been God, he would not have been able to know their inner dialogue. Let's pick it up in verse 8. It says, immediately, And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. So that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Did you notice the scribes aren't saying anything? They're just thinking stuff. Their hearts are accusing them before God. A man's heart shows what kind of person he really is. And Jesus is showing another part of his godly attributes here. His omniscience or his all-knowingness. And he says to the guys, I know what you're thinking And why are you thinking these things? You're doubting me. But let me show you that I do have authority over sins. And he tells the paralytic to get up and go home. And the dude did that immediately. Both the forgiveness and pardon of sins and the ability to heal a paralytic require the omnipotent power of God. R.C. Sproul says Jesus' declaration of forgiveness is not mere wishful thinking, but is as effectual to pardon the paralyzed man as his healing word is effectual to restore the man's ability to walk. The text says that they were all amazed. They all glorified God. That is to the exclusion of the scribes and the Pharisees because we know they would not give God glory. And we see them at least 12 times in this gospel account alone having exchanges like this with Jesus. Belief in Jesus is going to cost them something. It's going to cost them something they're unwilling to let go of. 
They're going to have to let go of their power and their control over people in order to believe in Jesus. And they're not going to do that. They're unwilling to do that. Look at verse 10 again. Jesus calls himself the Son of Man. This is Jesus' most used adjective for himself. He uses it close to a hundred times in the four gospel accounts. And we see Jesus using it very specifically. In the gospel of Mark, he is seen as the Son of Man who is serving. Later, we will see him as the Son of Man who is suffering. And ultimately, we will see him as the Son of Man who is coming in glory. But why is this designation so important? Why did Jesus choose to call himself the Son of Man? In the Old Testament, this term was used in two different ways. For example, in the Psalms, we see it used to describe like a human being, just a general person. But in the prophetic writings, specifically in Daniel 7, we see it used to refer to the one who is coming to establish the kingdom of God. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus is making a statement by calling himself the Son of Man. He's saying, I am he. I am Jesus, fully God and fully man. I am God incarnate. I am God in flesh. I came to identify with you, sinful humanity, and Jesus serves us. And Jesus suffers on our behalf. He is God. He is coming to earth to fulfill the mission. He is the Lord of glory. By making these statements, Jesus is saying he is both the suffering servant and the conquering king. He is God, and he will receive a kingdom that is from everlasting to everlasting. In order for him to fulfill that kingdom's mission, though, he first will have to serve the church of God by suffering for the church of God on a sinner's cross. So now we've seen Jesus in a battle with the cosmic forces in the spiritual realm, and now we're seeing Jesus engaged in a battle in the defense of the ministry of the word with the religious leaders of the day. And that ought to lead us to ask some questions. Every time we approach a passage of Scripture, especially narrative passages like this where the author is telling us a story, we need to ask a few questions. The first question is, what does this say about who God is? That has to be the first question. Because if the Bible is God's revelation of who He is and His good and perfect will, then everything, even our very existence, should point back to Him. So our lives are not our own. They're his, which should lead us to submit everything to him. Our marriages, our parenting, our singleness, our sexuality, our finances, our careers, everything. Because if we claim to be a Christian, our lives are not our own. So what does this text specifically teach us about God? Number one, God is the only one who can forgive sins. Jesus, 
the crowd, the religious leaders, they would all agree to this point. God is the only one that can forgive sins. We also see that he knows us. We also see that God knows us. And because he knows us, he knows that we're marred by sin. The text teaches us that our greatest need is spiritual healing, not primarily physical or mental or emotional healing. We need God's forgiveness from our sins first. And because Jesus gave forgiveness to this paralytic, we see God can be compassionate towards us too. Jesus did not leave this man paralyzed either. He didn't leave him paralyzed. He didn't leave him in sin. He healed him both physically and spiritually because God honors all who come to him in faith. We see Jesus fully God, fully man, the crux of the entire Bible. God, through Jesus, knows our hearts. He knows our needs. He wants to forgive us of our sins because he died on the cross for them. He is pleased to heal and redeem as he sees fit, as he sees fit uh, for his glory and his glory alone. So that's number one. Number two, uh, the second question we need to ask is, what does this text say about me? What do I need to believe? What do I need to do? What do I need to repent of? Because of what this text teaches us about who God is, it does reveal to us that we too can be loved and forgiven. What we see in Jesus' interaction with this paralytic is that it is impossible for a person to rid his soul of the sense of guilt by trying to offset our good deeds, or our sins by doing good deeds. Man, this type of thinking will lead you to. Uh, failure and despair when you try to offset your sins by good deeds because we can never be good enough. Instead, Jesus came to proclaim and provide the one and only solution, and that's himself. Through Christ, there's forgiveness, and this is based only on Christ's atonement for sins. What we also see is that Christ's forgiveness is never standing alone. One commentator said this is a pardon plus, meaning in Christ, God dispels the paralytic's awful disposition, his despair, and Christ embraces him with the arms of his protecting and adopting love. Man, in Christ, there's forgiveness for your sins. Some of you are overwhelmed with feelings of guilt and shame for things you've done or things that have happened to you in the past, listen to me. Do not put burdens on yourself that Jesus doesn't put on you. Because of the cross of Jesus, we see that we're loved. You see that you're wanted. We've been given a family. We've been given an inheritance in Christ. Man, some of you operate like Christ has saved us. Now I better not mess up. We view God the Father as this firm disciplinarian. And yes, God does discipline those he loves. And yes, God does take sin seriously, so we need to as well. But God isn't up in heaven functioning like a perpetual hand popper. He's not chastising you for all the wrong you're doing. 
That is not the heart of a good and perfect father. God's discipline towards us is always corrective. It's always redemptive. It's always restorative. He loves us. He wants us. And if you're in Christ, he is not mad at you. God is not angry with you. He is not disappointed with you. He loves you. Whenever you sin, Christ does not want you to rest in that. The point isn't that you'd feel bad or feel guilty or feel shameful, but that you would run to Jesus because he is running towards you. Jesus' blood purchased access to the Father. You don't have to run and hide and self-isolate because God already knows. There is no hiding from God. Man, but also because of the cross, you can trust that he's good. Church, repent of your unbelief. Run to Jesus in faith and in trust. Jesus invites us to approach him in bold confidence. The same bold confidence that would lead four guys to pull the roof off a house they didn't even own. The response of the crowd to what they witnessed was worship and awe. Repentance and belief will lead us to worship and praise to God for who he is and what he's done. I think it's interesting how on the surface these religious leaders do everything right. They seem to have it all together, and yet they are always in conflict with Jesus. On the other hand, the people who the world would see as like unworthy or unfit or messed up or too far gone or living in ongoing unrepentant sin. Jesus is full of love, full of grace and compassion towards these people. These guys that try to live their best, good, clean, moral lives, their hearts are swollen with pride. Religion leads to legalism, and they have missed the heart of God in the process. There is a real danger in forgetting the reason why we have gathered here in the first place. We are all sinners in desperate need of the saving grace of Jesus. The cross completely levels the playing field. We are all far worse than we probably even realize. God loves us more than we could ever imagine or even think we deserve. God is loving. God is gracious to forgive us. God is gracious to cleanse us. So operate out of grace. There's also a real danger in abusing grace, too, and continuing to live in ongoing unrepentant sin. Most of the encounters we see with Jesus and a person who is walking in sin, Jesus is graceful, gracious, and truthful. He meets their needs, and then he tells them, go and sin no more. Again, your greatest need is forgiveness. Don't willfully persist in sin. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. There is grace and love for you, but you have to receive it in faith and you have to walk in Christ, not in the flesh, not in your sin, not in your own desires. 
God invites us to stand firm on his promises that because of the resurrection of Jesus, God is who he says he is. God can and will forgive our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. So let's run to him in faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you, Lord, that the same power that can make a paralytic stand and walk, Lord, it's the same power that is able to forgive sins, Lord, and it's the same power that raised Christ from the dead, Lord, and it's the same power that dwells inside the believers. Lord, so may we be dependent on you, Holy Spirit, for the strength that we need to make it. Lord, you promise to never forsake us, to never leave us, to never abandon us, Lord. So may we hold tight to that promise this morning and run to you in faith and repentance, Lord, laying aside our guilt and our shame. Lord, our desires for comfort and control. May we just rest in the resurrected Savior because you love us and gave yourself for us. Lord, we love you. Lord, we need you. We ask these things in your name.